Welcome, everybody. Welcome, anyone who's tuning in live. Uh, welcome, anyone who's tuning in post-live event to this. This is our first Twitter spaces, and it will be episode 71 of the UK Run Chat podcast. Myself, Joe Williams, and Michelle Mortimer, we're your hosts, and we are chatting with our strength and conditioning partner, Saw. We've got founder Alex on his own account, and we've got James on the Saw account. How this is going to work, we, myself and Michelle, we're going to ask a few questions of Alex and James uh, before opening up the floor, so you can ask your strength and conditioning questions if you have any. If you want to ask a question, you, you can either come up and speak to Alex and James yourself, or you can tweet us the question and we'll ask it for you. Alex, James, good evening. Do you want to give us a, a minute or two's introduction to you both before we before we dig in? Absolutely. Alex, do you want to go go first? Because you're the main man. Alex has lost connection, so why don't I um, introduce myself? So, hi, I'm I'm James Riley. I'm well. I describe myself as Saw's resident resident runner. So I am a well. I'm a I'm, I'm a sort of runner for the last eight years. I started running when um, my kids were first born and I needed to lose a bit of weight and out of that wish to do some exercise an obsession was born and my life is now pretty much running um so when I'm not working with the saw guys I'm actually work as a full-time running coach so my life is running coaching and working with Alex and Josh and Tom on how we can support runners with their performance with the sore strength and conditioning. Thank you, James. Alex, are you back? I am sorry. That that was totally my fault, that one. I uh, managed to uh, dis- <laughs> disconnect cool. to the internet. <laughs> cool. Introduce yourself, please. So I'm Alex. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Saw. Um, we set Saw up... Uh, it's been about a year now since we we set it up, but it has been in the making for a couple of years. Um, I've spent and still do spend um, an awful lot of my time working in high performance sport. I've spent 16 years within the British system, working with some of Britain's greatest athletes across a, an array of sports. And now I uh, split my time with Saw, working with James and Josh and um, Tom. And the rest of my work is really helping individuals, teams and organisations to improve their their performance, whether that's uh, sports performance or strategic um, human performance pieces around what they're, what, they're, what they're looking to try and achieve there. Thank you. Give us a little bit more information on that time that you spent in the British system, please. Yes, yeah, so I, I started back in the early 2000s where strength conditioning wasn't actually a thing, really. It kind of, I think I was the first year or the second year where strength conditioning actually became a, a genuine career within the, within the UK. So I, I started up in Sheffield many, many moons ago and did an internship up there and that's where I really got to kind of cut my teeth on a load of well I suppose I made all my mistakes back then anyone who's listening now please uh, don't cringe too much about that but so I worked with a load of different Olympic and Paralympic sports and then in 2008 I moved no 2007 I moved down to um, athletics in London and uh, worked in their development program and had a number of their sprinters middle distance endurance runners I was looking after and then I moved on to British Rowing and spent five years working alongside them in preparation for the London and Rio Games and then during that time I was seconded by the British Olympic Association to head up their performance services out in Rio and in in preparation for Tokyo but just before Tokyo um, I um, decided to uh, quit it all and uh, set up these businesses so that's um yeah, that was my uh, my kind of whistle stop tour of, of working the UK system.
Oh, sorry, Joe. I think I lost you there. That's okay. Did, let, let's go back to the beginning then and what, to tell us why you set up Saw. So, I had this. I had this um, kind of. It sounds really odd. A bit of a bit of a feeling of um, discontent with with some of the work I was doing. We we've spent. Well, I spent a huge amount of time trying to kind of improve performances of those working at the the very elite level, and you spent a huge amount of time doing doing that, and then. I had friends and family asking about how they how they can um, improve their their performances, and actually, what what it became really apparent was that the the principles that we apply to to the very elite apply equally to to those who just want to continue running and enjoy enjoy life really with through through exercise and physical activity. Um, so when the opportunity came with Tom and I, we were it was, it was kind of during COVID, we were. We were walking around those times where you could only meet one person for an hour a day. We'd be treading around Epsom, Epsom Downs, talking to each other around what we could be, what we could do, and we came we came to this conclusion that actually, wouldn't it be brilliant if we were able to kind of really distill all the, all of our learnings or our collective experience of over thirty years of experience in this space and bring it into a a, a place where everybody can have access to it and it's it's helping to kind of cut through all of the noise that when you when you look on the internet and there's so much out there it's like well how can we really help people to genuinely stay stay um injury free and be able to do that without having to go to gym and and have to spend huge amounts of money on trainers and and so on so we wanted to make something really accessible but really <coughs> sorry excuse me really accessible both from a kind of a content point of view, but um, accessible also from the quality and the, the, the credibility point of view as well. So we went on this journey around really distilling down what things we know have worked and what things we know don't work. And what we did was then kind of package that up as a as a, a way of really, um, really helping people. And, and the, the big thing for me with, with all of this was philosophically, we we kind of worked out that you can only help people if you know a little bit about them and where they currently sit. So that's where the, the risk assessment comes in and so on. Um, so there's things, mm-hmm. things like that, which kind of kind of guided us around um, how we, how we move this forward. Mm-hmm. So to, I'm going to dig into the risk assessment and the, and the personalized programming. So let, let's take that back a step then. So how does Saul help runners? So fundamentally, the the two areas in which it can help runners the first is around um, consistency of training and the second is around um, increasing the ability to uh, or, or increase the uh, sorry decrease the risk of, of injury so we can never totally mitigate that risk of injury but we can definitely decrease that so from a consistent consistency point of view one of the things we know and and have spent a, like a huge amount of time over the years is those who are able to train more consistently are and, and regularly are able to do more training and by doing more training we know that that helps them improve their performance and performance is more about them going out and doing or completing running doing running than it is about trying to break a a, um, a world record. It's a, it's about the the act of, in, of 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 the of the run itself, and so we're really clear on this this point that if we can get people running more, they are likely to improve their running performance, and that that's we've seen that across pretty much every sport at every level. That uh, the more consistent you are, the um, the more likely you are to improve your your, your performance. The second, the second piece is very much around the the injury risk and what we know with running. There are clearly very high, very high rates of um, injury. I think you've probably seeing some of our social media that between fifty and seventy five percent of runners will will get injured each year, which is a huge, which is a huge amount. And most of that, eighty percent of that, is is um, Overuse injuries and overuse injuries, we know we can have a large degree of 
um, control over so we can we can manage that. And we know of those 80% of overuse injuries, 80% of those happen at the knee or below. So we can we can start to really kind of go down and drill down on this, this bit here that we can help runners increase their protection against overuse injuries. And that's what the that's what SOAR does. It's identified the key areas in which runners are most likely to injure and the uh, risk assessment and the training program um, basically are targeted towards those those high-risk sites. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned the risk assessment there. Yeah. Talk to, talk to us about that. So the risk assessment, um, and we'll, we'll get onto it, the name in a, in a little bit, I'm sure, but... Um, it's, yeah. it's basically it's, it's not as health and safety as um, as it's at. Well, it is a little bit, but it, but it is it's nowhere near as as as, uh, as much as that. But what we what we've worked out for for runners that with the with with low limb and particularly knee and blow being a really high high injury risk site for overuse injuries, that we can we can assess the uh, muscles and the soft tissue around each of those joints in terms of its uh, strength strength endurance or its condition its its capability to withstand repeated loading and its range of movements and we know from and the work we've done over the last 15 years or so that there's a there's a relationship between um, what a what a joint or the tissues around a joint can tolerate and its and its uh, relationship to over, overuse injuries. So the risk assessment mm-hmm. purposely goes after those, those areas, and you'll see the risk assessment. There's, there's, there's four four assessments to range of movement, to um, to strength strength uh, endurance or, or conditioning based tasks, and they're looking at calf raise and they're looking at hamstring, and the range of movement is looking at um, knee to wall, so looking at ankle range of movement, and it's um, looking at the um, uh, quad stretch as well. And we know that if you are below a certain level, then we know there's a higher mm-hmm. risk. There's a, there's an increased risk that you are unable to tolerate the amount of load that, that you're putting through your body while running. And at higher scores, obviously, um, reduce that risk. We can never, as I said, we can never remove that, but we know as you get closer to those those scores, and where we know that there's a, a a chance that you're reducing that risk of injury. And the important bit here is this idea of the kind of the Pareto principle of the eighty twenty. Like we spend twenty percent of the effort to get eighty percent of the outcome, and for us, that eighty percent for the for the vast majority, probably about ninety five percent of the population, is probably enough to reduce the risk or manage the risk of injury around the, around the lower limb. Mm-hmm. So over, over 15 years, the history of, of how that was developed on, on reliability. Yeah. What, what, I, I, how have you got to this point? Like give us some more detail on that 15 years, I suppose. Yeah. So, and how do you get to that point of just having those those four exercises that give you that information for you to be able to personalize a program for someone. Yeah. Okay. So it started um, with athletics many, many moons ago where we were starting to identify um, athletes that were, um, what's the word, coming back from injury. And you would often get the high, you know, the, the, the high force or the high speed or power Based assessments and they'd be kind of normal and they'd be return them back to from an injury and they would then break down again from injury and it was only when we started to investigate a little bit more that it wasn't about what their maximum capability was it was much more around their repeated capability so we're like okay if if, if hamstrings and calves and hips are being um are being re-injured because they're not able to able to tolerate um, tolerate what we've asked them to do, then we need to change the way in which we, we train or re- rehab them. And what's really good being for for the vast majority of athletes is that they have two legs, so we compare the, the non-injured and injured side, and you get this quite quite reasonable scoring of between um, the injured and non-injured side. So we started changing the way we started loading loading these individuals with the strength training, so much more higher volume work, lower intensity, 
And then we, what came of that was that we needed to find some ways to assess that. So we wanted to then find really simple assessments which would assess the um, that change in in uh, strength endurance or or, um, or conditioning, so that, that high volume, low intensity work. And that's where the, these these assessments kind of became became um, came to fruition, I suppose. And then as we as we moved through, and I've kind of moved into into rowing, and we kind of introduced a lot more around um, in the rowing program. And then I, what I didn't say about my time in the high performance system, I headed up the the English Institute of Sport um, and looked after or oversaw all forty Olympic Paralympic sports and the seventy odd. Uh, strength conditioning coaches across all of the across all of the um, those sports and collectively we were able to integrate these assessments across most of the sports we started to get really really strong indication of all the things that were um, um, going on Um, so we were able then to start to collect data and understand where where what these assessments were really assessing and and the the most important thing was that these assessments needed to be completed in a manner which didn't require lots of equipment because you could end up being in a, a hotel in the middle of nowhere with no equipment, but you still needed to have some assessments of these individuals, which is why they're really simple. And you can see they're using things in your house, like steps or the wall and, and so on to be able to do. So that's where they, they kind of first came about. And the simplicity mm-hmm. actually kind of was born out of, trying to increase the reliability and the um, the the kind of validity so the validity being does it test what we really wanted to test and the reliability being can we repeatedly assess the individual with the same um same task and that's why they became so simple because we could remove a huge amount of the um, the noise that normally happens with testing just by keeping them simple and we've tested and retested and we've assessed um how reliable they are and they are probably some of the most reliable field tests that we can do uh, of any field test in the um in the um in our kind of arsenal that we've had over the last uh, 15 years mm-hmm. and, and for those listening so there's there's four tests isn't there yes which uh, calf raise hip bridge and then there's a stretch up against the door frame <laughs> and, it, and, uh, and the quad stretch, which I was a zero on. I, I, it, it's, um, it's fascinating when you actually do them, the simple things, and it gives you a real eye-opener. So my calf raises, for example, I could do 17 on my left and like mid-30s on my right. And I had no idea that there was such a, that there was such a staggering difference between the two. That's like twice the amount. Yeah, and I think when we spoke, we spoke about this previously. And my um, sister and brother-in-law both being uh, doctors. I'm about to sell them out now because they, they could be listening or might hear this. But they're both both doctors and both do a lot of running. Both have had low low limb injuries, and one of the big things is when they became injured, the kind of the normal thing was just to rest, and then when you're pain free, you get back to back to running. Um, and then they both would complain that. They couldn't run for much um, for many more days or weeks because the same problem was occurring. And what's what's effectively happened is that you by by injuring the, yourself, you've changed the, the the actual structure of the muscle or the tendon around that joint, and it can no longer do what it did prior to being injured. So you're running on it again. Is actually you're running on an even weaker and a less stable um, uh, structure. So when you see your left and right difference there, um, what you probably can consider, can consider and go back to your history is like, well, have you had anything, any injury or any anything that has really affected that side over, over the other? And, and it's really, really obvious when you have with your scoring, where there's such a big difference that there's one side is cl- clearly more vulnerable than the other side, and that alone is a really valuable bit of insight because it's it means that um, you can do uh, you, you know what the issue is, but the most important thing is that you can do something about it now as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, to how do you then act upon that data that you get? If so, somebody goes on, they complete the risk assessment. What? What happens? So once you complete your risk assessment, you you get your report sent to you, 
um, and it will highlight two two things. It will identify your um, your individual risk of each of those areas, and it will identify an, a a collective risk, and it's going to high, medium, low, uh, low risk. And with that, you kind of you can do I suppose one or two things, or one of three things. Uh, the first thing is you can ignore it and hope hope the best. Two is that you can organize your own training around it or, or three then based upon what saw offers it offers a, a training program which is built upon your test data so once you've completed the the, the test or the assessments that will identify where your sort of starting point is and then the training program will automatically um, be written based upon your existing capability and then um it will try and move those forward. So if you have that left-right difference, as you describe, um, and you've probably seen it in your program, there's a um, there's the program is entirely biased towards um, making sure that your your weaker side can catch up with your right side. So while your right side might be doing the same same volume, it's based upon your weaker side, to try, and it's always trying to improve those differences and those um, um, the differences between left and right, but also the how far away it is from our, our standard. Shall I, I know that you did. And I think what's it, sorry, it's James here. I was just going to say, I think what's exciting about do you, do you have a question the program. Sorry, I think James was just going to answer something there before I, I cut in. Did you want to go first, James? Thanks, Michelle. I think I was just going to say, I think what's, what excited me about the SOAR programme when, when Alex was discuss, describing it was, you know, it is so overwhelming, the amount of strength and conditioning information you can get off the internet. And I think it was, you know, it was the attraction of having, you know, Alex and Tom's sort of unique experience, distilling everything down, actually, to this is what matters. And then actually having something, you know, and I'm on week 10, I think, of the programme, actually having something that is personalised to you so it isn't too hard and it isn't too easy, I think is, is a pretty unique, unique offering. Sorry, Michelle, over to you. Yeah, I was just going to say, I did the risk assessment this morning, actually, and was surprised at how simple it was but also shocked at how it really does target those areas that you need it to um i yeah i was certainly surprised at just those four simple exercises how how much i need to work on personally so i'm, I'm looking forward to getting a program with you alex <laughs> Yeah, well, Can I I'm, just I'm, ask, does, does the programme just focus on those four areas, though, or does it, you know, is it a more all-encompassing thing? Yeah, that's a good good question. So the the programme, the programme's been designed to focus on your scores from those four assessments, but we also recognise that there are other other things that contrib contribute to uh, that that. To, to the risk of um, uh, overuse injury. So your the programme will always have trunk training in, in there um, because we know that we know that if you if you can um, if you can't tolerate loading through the lower limb it tends to move its way up through the, the knee, the hip and, and through to the trunk. So there, there's always a, a, a bit of trunk training and we also know a stable trunk can improve um, pretty much any athletic performance economy and efficiency. There is also a little bit around the the foot and ankle as well that we we keep in there because we know that 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 is also a really important a really important um, area to focus on. So what you will find is that each area is focused on the program is written so that you, you complete it three times a week. Um, as again, it takes when you first start, it probably takes about fifteen minutes. By the time you finish week ten to twelve, you're looking probably closer to the half hour mark. Um, but each each area of the body is focused on twice a week, so you're getting two dosages of loading a, a week uh, or range of movement work a week, and we we reckon that that's about as as small amount as you probably need or you can get away with to see 
the biggest gains. Like you can do more, but we also recognise that trying to do more is going to be more challenging. So we try and keep it down to as, as few sessions as possible to get the most amount of the uh, of Im- impact without losing without losing that um, the 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 uh, the output piece of it too, uh, too much. Thank you. If if anyone listening would like to raise your hand and come up and ask any questions, it can either be about what we've been chatting about or anything to do with strength and condition. I'm sure Alex and James will be happy to answer your questions. Um, bef- before we came on, Alex, we had a little bit of a chat because you were thinking about changing the name of the assessment. Yeah. Uh, the This was brought up weeks ago. Um by one of our, our colleagues who was like, it, it just sounds like it's a health and safety assessment and you, it's, it feels like you're back at work and you're having to do your manual handling training or whatever it is. And it doesn't doesn't feel quite, quite right. So one of the things we want to do is to change the name to be a little bit more reflective of what we think, what we think um, it, it is. And actually it kind of sits kind of close to what, um what people i suppose what people feel it it um connects with and so so we're, we're going to run a, a poll today as well this evening just to get your your uh, or the audience's insight around this as well just to get a sense of what they what they think is a better name i'm just trying to pull up the um the uh the names that we've we've come up come up for it so we were looking at, is it a performance profile, a physical profile, a readiness profile, or a physical readiness profile? And these, these kind of names that we're trying to trying to um, test test out, really, just to see that is, is the, are the assessments more around readiness and preparedness and the, the physical side of it rather than this kind of very sterile risk assessment name for it. So, yeah, we would be really really thrilled if you guys can um see uh, fill in the poll when it gets uh, shared live through the uk run chats uh, twitter handle yeah we'll share that in a, in a moment um so if like i said if anyone would like to ask any strength and conditioning questions of alex please do put your hand up or you can dm us or send us a tweet and we'll ask it for you when when you have alex when you've hosted your chat hours and we've opened up the floor and you've had tweets come in every time that you've hosted, there's been one, sometimes two questions about plyometrics. Yeah. Do you just want to talk about plyometrics and how that fits in with running and strength and conditioning for runners? And what is it? Yeah. So the simplest thing is like running is plyometric. And if you look at plyometric and it's true, true sense of the um the word it's um it has a there's plyometrics is about the the absorption of landing turning that um absorption force and and um reapplying it back into the ground is it's in terms of its simplest simplest format and the more you can be plyometric in your running the more um economic economical you can be um and therefore you can you should theoretically well not theoretically it's been proven that you can you can run um you can run further or faster when you when you have much better um plyometric or eccentric utilization and the the important bit here is like when you look at some of the studies around running you will see that um so for, for a marathon for instance there's a if you if there wasn't any energy recoil from the, the tendons and the ligaments of your foot or the tendons of your, your knee and ankle and the, the ligaments of your foot then the energy cost to complete a marathon should be about 20 percent higher than what it actually is which means you're in marathon running you're getting 20 percent of your energy from or to complete the race just through the plyometric actions of of the the, the ligaments and of the foot and the tendons of your ankle and, and knee, which is an incredible amount of of free free energy. Um, so to optimise that, that's a real that's a real um, a real strength to, to do that. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. So the so the idea of having plyometrics within the training program is 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 really is really important. But I think 
the 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 challenge with with well not the challenge I suppose the opportunity I should say with with, with plyometrics are that when you complete them you can potentially increase your capability to transfer the the um, the muscle tendon behavior um, or the muscle tendon interaction that you have into running but the the challenge you will have with that is sometimes the muscles and the joints around those those uh, tendons don't cannot tolerate the loading so you, that's why the program is more at the moment is designed more around the muscle uh, muscle and the the um the conditioning side of strength training rather than the more plyometric side and the plyometric stuff will, will come but it means that you just got a basic level of being able to tolerate more loading so the plyometric piece for us becomes this um i suppose this performance piece now so when you when you are capable of being able to tolerate the repeated loading now actually once you've once you can demonstrate that the plyometrics would just add it's almost like the the icing on the cake i suppose on on the uh, from that analogy it allows you to to fully utilize your physical capability while while um while running so it is hugely important the risk with all of this is when you look at, i was looking on um, social media yesterday at this the types of plyometric activities which you see people doing or advocating can be quite um quite advanced and you don't need them to be advanced they can be really simple and if you like one of the things i get any athlete that i work with which is ground based so running based so tennis players footballers runners whatever it might be one of the things we always get them to do is skip as a warm-up and the skipping just teaches the good foot placement and the, the reabsorption of the energy through the tendons and allow you to, to apply that more effectively. And if you can skip more effectively, then you are definitely going to be able to uh, utilize that, um, that, that plyometric component with, within your running. Once we've done that, then you can move to more, more complex stuff, but you, you re- it really doesn't need to be that, that complex. And I think then the other part with plyometrics, I think people, um, also include just jump jump training within plyometrics. So the plyometrics needs a landing and then a rebound to, to jump. A jump is is where there is no rebound and you're starting on the floor and you're jumping up. And that's not really a, a plyometric a- activity. It's just a much more explosive strength activity. It doesn't make it any less relevant, but it's not tr- truly or, or strictly a, a plyometric a- activity. But if so that that kind of teaches the body to move quickly, but it doesn't doesn't teach this plyometric activity within the the the, the tendons of the the knee and the ankle and the, and the ligamentous structure of the foot. So the the simple landing and rebounding activities are are, are pretty are pretty um, are pretty important. And then the final thing I'd say is about consistency. One of the big things we know around plyometric training the more skilled a performer is the more force they can produce during these these uh, plyometric drills so if you just take a really simple 30 centimeter box you jump off the 30 centimeter box and uh, land and, and jump back into the air that those who are novices will produce about one and a half times their body weight and force on the land on, on landing Whereas a triple jumper, for instance, will produce upwards of eight or nine times their body weights when they land. So from the same height, a more skilled person can produce more force. And when you produce more force, you can apply that into the into the ground and therefore um, jump higher or run further. So the, the reason why I say this is that consistency becomes really key. So if you repeatedly do the same task on an almost weekly basis over a long period of time, and we're talking six to 12 months of time without really changing it, although the, the height might not have changed, your ability to produce huge amounts of force quickly does change. And that, that's really important because you become more skilled at it. So there isn't really this need to keep changing the exercise. It's about just keeping the consistent exercise and going being comfortable with that consistency and I, you know, I had this argument with athletes all, all the time that they they think the program's a little bit a little bit boring but my point back to them is 
that the consistency is what allows them to be so good at what they do. And and this this for me is the, the critical bit around plyometrics, not needing to make things complicated, being consistent with it and being comfortable that doing the same task will actually help you perform significantly better in the future. <coughs> and it's interesting, yeah. Alex, someone messaged me an article from outside online by Alex Hutchinson today, which was talking about, it had a study saying there was about a 3.9% improvement in running economy from plyometrics. And and the sub- subtitle of the article, almost to pick up your point, was, you know, it turns out they don't need to be complicated or risky. So I think that, that just kind of puts it in context. And I quite like the fact that 3.9% was then compared to the Vaporfly 4%, being someone who's interested in super shoes. <laughs> Do you know, what, Alex? It's it's interesting because I I think so. I did my risk assessment a uh, week before last, and as we mentioned, I I discovered the difference in my left calf being so much weaker during COVID. I bought a skipping rope. You know the times where we couldn't leave the house for more. You know you'd go out and you'd done your walk with the family. So I bought a skipping rope and I skipped barefooted, and my left calf pinged. I, f- I forgot about that, and you've just reminded me with your skipping analogy. Well, there we go. I'm glad we've managed to um, yeah. get your uh, your pathology of why, why that happened. Yeah, um, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I, I suspect, though, if you did your the risk assessment prior to pinging your calf muscle, there might have been a difference there before that mm. um, that occurred. But again, this is me hypothetically yeah. speaking. Um, but with the plyometric thing, I go, go back to James's point there. I think you're the one of the things we find with um, plyometrics as well is around this idea of um, safety. That if you feel unsafe or you feel you're unstable while you're doing a plyometric activity, you're not going to be trying to optimize the landing and the rebound. You're going to be more concerned about landing and not hurting yourself or falling over so one of the things we we say with people with plyometrics is just put your hand against a wall and do your bounds or your your kind of drop jumping uh, in place or your or your small uh, drop jumps and just by simply having your hand on the wall gives you a little bit more stability and it it removes the fear or the kind of the 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 safety component of it um, in terms of your perceived safety of it. And it allows you to focus on the activity and you do not detract or you do not remove any of the outcome. In fact, you'll augment that outcome because you feel more stable. So that's why the simplicity really works um, because you can make it, you can, you can increase your own perception of the safety of it just by giving yourself a bit of external support. Mm -hmm. Your point about, the consistency and yet people not seeing an improvement in the height that they jump that's really where a significant amount of discipline comes in doesn't it because if you're doing that for six months and you and you're trying to jump higher and, and you don't yeah it that takes some discipline doesn't it? <laughs> it 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 takes huge amount of discipline um and and it it, it is hard because you um you do want to move things forward and the so when you're doing those kind of um rebound jump the drop jumps and so on like there's two components to the um the the jump one is how much time you spend on the floor and then the second is how much time you spend in the air and so you can without having to look at jump height you can uh theoretically um work out what we call a reactive strength indexes or RSI which is uh, flight time divided by contact time so how much time you, you spend in the air and divided by how much time you um, spent on the floor so if you film yourself um, on a slow-mo on your camera you can frame by frame you can work out when you hit the floor count how many frames forward until you leave the floor and then um, how many frames you're up in the air and then until you hit the floor again and you can work out really roughly um if your reactive strength index has improved and that's a kind of standardized plyometric assessment which i still use um if i don't have kind of force plates or technology to measure that i'll still film it and work out really quickly how long they they spent on the floor to get a rough idea if you've improved so you can 
you can improve that score by spending less time on the floor, more time in the air, or less time on the floor and uh, uh, more time in the air, and that will give you a better better score. And that's one way you can you can start um, kind of measuring it yourself if you want to really want to go after that without having to buy. Well, no one wants to spend expensive equipment just to be able to measure one test yeah. uh, twice a week. So it's yeah, that's where I'd go with it. We have a we do have a question from some from Paul who's listening in. He's, he's tweeted in. So, do you advise that you can still run with piriformis syndrome? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so, my fundamentally running in pain or exercising in pain is not a good idea, and the reason why that is not a good idea then it's obviously there's if, if there's pain there's clearly a trauma and there's clearly a a something going on in that space which is um not not going going um going well and that's whether that's the actual cause or it's a symptom of something else that that'd be my first bit but the, the second bit is um and i'll try not to nause you with too much science on this but there is um when you're in pain, you change the the anticipation and the pre-anticipation of movement. So if you know you're in pain, every time you go to put your foot down on the floor, there's a you the the, the amount of um, uh, movement different. Sorry, what am I trying to say? The 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 the, the movement signal of how you, your foot place is placed on the floor changes because you're pre-anticipating that it's going to be painful when you put your foot on the floor. So therefore you change your movement strategy to, to, to compensate for that. Now, when you start doing that, that becomes quite a significant impact on future movement and the health of movement as well. So you, you may find even once that um, performance syndrome or any other injury for that matter has recovered, that that pre-anticipation of landing to kind of protect yourself from the, the pain that you feel may still exist. And that, if you've done that for tens of thousands of times, that can actually become a dominant movement pattern. And that becomes quite difficult to, to move. Now, the other important thing is with injuries and, and or particularly with pain, what you really want is one really stable positions that you move into. So like if you think about ground contact being a really stable position that you have a good consistency in how your foot is placed on the floor, your, your knee and hip angle and your upright trunk posture and your alternated arm swing to leg leg uh, or leg um, or foot contact on the floor and for the contract contralateral so opposite arm to opposite leg action to the to the um, foot that's on the floor. Now when you become injured, what you then get is this really, really variable, so not just injured with in pain as well, you get this really variable um positioning or landing of each of each foot strike so suddenly you're you don't actually land consistently anymore and that becomes a problem too so this both of those things actually can increase further risk of injury elsewhere in the in the body or continue to exacerbate the the, the piriformis so the 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 um the challenge the challenge is you, you know you've had the the thing of um uh uh, no pain, uh, no. Well, I can't remember what's that. Training pain, um, no pain, no gain. We 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 kind of talk about don't train in pain because there is no gain, and that ultimately means that you're you're likely to put your put yourself at more risk of of that injury, of the of the existing injury, or increase the risk of injuries elsewhere because you've changed the way in which the body is loading and the body is not designed to load in the way that you've just changed I hope that wasn't too too uh, uh, <laughs> was <good>. off topic <laughs> no Paul's Paul's replied again he said thanks for the advice I'm actually waiting for a, an MRI which is on the 9th of June I, so I think I, I, I feel for Paul I've had piriformis uh-huh. syndrome I mean my, my my from my perspective you know I can't only echo don't don't train in pain if it's more than like three out of ten rest it 
eventually mine subsided sufficiently that I could run on it without getting it worse, but it was agonizing. Yeah. It's nasty. Shell, have you got any questions? Um, no, I think you've actually done a really good job of answering all the questions that I jotted down before we started our chats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the thing that stood out for me was just about the consistency and, you know, taking into account that strength training isn't meant to be that exciting, is it? We just need to to just keep doing it, be really consistent. Um, and I think if people can go away and take that on board, I think we'll we'll all be doing much better. Yeah, the way I liken strength training in this bit, it's it's like a seatbelt in a car. You, you kind of need it and you only know you need it is when you don't have it and then it becomes a real problem um, <laughs> um, so yeah it's, it's doesn't, it doesn't have to be pretty and it doesn't have to be um, um, glamorously done in the gym like, and, and most of the time just the way in which we structure it just using your own body weight or simple pieces of equipment and space that you can you can um, when I say equipment, I'm talking about chairs and steps in your house rather than anything more than that. You, you can pretty much do whatever you need to um, um, to, to, to give yourself a bit of protection. Mm-hmm. And we put out a tweet today saying, you know, if you used, used some, some of the time you spent watching TV or on a screen with strength training, that could make a real difference. I think, you know, I'd almost add to that to say, actually, you know, some of the stuff we're looking at here you can do while you're watching tv you know and things like that so so it's actually you know stuff it's quite easy to fit in your day-to-day in your day-to-day life you can actually you know do some other things while you're doing it how do we then how do we impress upon people the importance of strength training because quite often what happens and we see this on the uk run chat channels is that people will get in touch with you because they're injured and then they think about strength training. So how do we get people starting strength training before they need it, you know, to prevent injury? It's a question that we ask ourselves most weeks about how, how basically what you're asking is how do you tell or support people to do something that they don't need, they, they don't know they need it right now? Um, and it's that's that's what we're 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 um, trying to answer that question. I, I, I don't think I've got a concise or an articulate answer to that. Outside of we can keep it simple, we can keep it um, short, and it can be done as James says any way where you want to. But fundamentally, I think what what we the re, the very existence of saw is to make it make it much more accessible and to know that it's a credible thing that will actually make make a difference in your um uh, in the in your your body's ability to tolerate running so i think that for me is probably the principle that i'm probably knowing um what james what james's view on this you might have something more to add to that i was i was going to say look the secret source to running as we all know is doing it consistently yet the chances are there's a 50% chance you're going to get injured in a given year. So, you know, if you can, anything you can do to prevent that injury is going to make you a better runner. And, you know, that, that is my view on why you do, why you do it. You know, there are lots of, we all love to go for a run rather than to do our strength training, but doing our strength training will mean we can go for a run, you know, in, in the future. And, it's really, you know, what we're suggesting here, you know, I know strength training can feel intimidating. It can feel like you don't know what you want to do. And also you're going to look an idiot doing it. You know, it's like going to yoga and you're, you know, you, you see the running meme of the runner as the tin man and everyone else bending down. You know, this is, yeah, this is simple. You can do it. It will improve your running. I was going to say, I guarantee that, but Alex probably wouldn't like me guaranteeing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suspect you. I suspect that you will improve. Before I, there's nobody 
I'll put this out here. It's not a guarantee, but I have yet to work with an individual who hasn't improved with the with the introduction of some type of strength training in their program, whatever sport at whatever level. Cool, Alex. We've been running a competition the last three weeks. Yeah, where people have uh, completed the risk assessment. They've got involved, and there's a Garmin up for grabs, and I believe some runners up prizes. Um, yes, I so pull the winner. Yeah, so first of all, thanks to everyone who's um, who uh, entered the competition. Um, Josh had um, done a random number uh, generator before we before we came on, and had has, has identified. The winner and five runners up. So the winner, yes, gets the, the watch, and then we'll get a free program. And the five runner ups will also get a free a free program. Um, so the winner is Beth Owen. Uh, congratulations! And then the five runner ups are Peter Crisp, Pete Cleesby, Laura Horn, Sally Minichella, sorry, Sally Minichella, and Wes McIntosh. So. In the next 24 hours, we will email you directly um, and get all the details for you to, for you, Beth, to send a watch, but, and, but for all of you, how you can get access to the program. So congratulations all um, for, for your wins, and, and thank you very much for uh, jumping on and, and, and joining in the competition with us. Yeah, congratulations, everybody. And if you haven't um, done the completed the uh, risk assessment you need to go to saw doc today to uh, and you'll find that under ready to run um the polls live for choosing a new name for that and um if you do have any strength and conditioning questions that you haven't asked this evening then you can always uh, send us a tweet tagging obviously at train with saw and alex and james and the team there will be there to support you has anyone got any final questions, comments, or anything before we wrap it up? Alex, James, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody who's listened in. Thanks, Shell. Uh, we'll, uh, anyone who's listened in, incidentally, this is our first Twitter spaces, so please do drop us a DM or send us your tweets if you'd like to hear more with our partners, with guests. Um, we're also open to having co-hosts just like we do with the chat hour via tweets on a Sunday evening. So uh, let us know what you think. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Thank Jack. you all. Thanks for having Thank us.